The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 24. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Here we are. It's taken us 10 months. But today I'm going to be preaching our last sermon in the book of 1 Corinthians. I hope you have enjoyed it. I know that I have. Um, I've learned a lot. I learn a lot just through the preparation of these sermons, going verse by verse. Very few of us. Uh, really take time to settle down into books of the Bible. If you have a reading plan like, like I do, I kind of have a yearly reading plan that I kind of go through a lot pretty quickly. But um, naturally, I don't just sit down and spend a lot of time, maybe 10 months like we just have in one book. And it's really fruitful uh, to do just that. Uh, in my 15 years of ministry now, I have heard many people say things like, um, I love Jesus but I hate the church. I love Jesus, but I just hate the church. And I've even heard uh, many pastors say things like, man, I love the ministry, just the people that drive me crazy. And, you know, we kind of giggle about that. And we kind of laugh at it, but it's those statements that kind of uncover a reality that's real, right? It un uncovers something that's real. And it's this difficulty um, of living in community and on mission with other sinners, right? Saints, what are saints? Saints are sinners who've been saved by grace, right? Who still sin. That's what saints are, right? So we have a real difficulty in living in community and on mission, which God calls us to do. There is no individualistic salvation. When God saves people, we've seen over and over through the book of 1 Corinthians, when God saves people, he does so by creating a community, by putting them into a body, that we're meant to live in community and on mission with people, right? So much so that being a Christian outside of a church is like being a fish outside of water. 
It's not going to go well for you. The Bible shows us, and we've been seeing in this study, why it's so hard to live in community with folks, right? And, and we talk a lot about different reasons why, but there's one aspect we don't speak very often. It's this, God has an adversary. God has an enemy who is hell-bent on destroying everything that Jesus wants to build. And the easiest way to do that is through what one term Paul uses is our besetting sins, our continual sinfulness, the sins that so easily cling to us and frustrate us. And one thing or one way Satan does that is this, and this is the frustrating one, right? When you're living in community, one of the frustrating ones. He blinds us to our sin. It's called the deceitfulness of sin. He he blinds us to our own sin. And when you're in this situation... You, really, you have no idea you're blind to your own sin. And what really is bugging you is everybody else's sin, right? Because you're blind to your own, but everybody else's, you have a magnifying glass on their sin, right? Everybody else's sin is so much more heinous and annoying than the issues that you're dealing with. And what happens when we do that, right? Somebody's anger, like you just, oh, they're so angry all the time. I just can't get, or someone's gossip. Oh, she's such a gossip. I can't believe. And their sin gets really big and you can't see your own sin. And your sin gets really small and you get really frustrated. And what happens is, is your heart, you don't even realize this, but your heart gets filled with pride. And we know, or scripture tells us in James that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So when we are looking down on someone and their sin's really frustrating us and we're kind of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, we're at opposition with grace. We're at opposition with God. We think those people, just they got serious issues, deep-seated issues. I just can't live in community with those type of people. And when that happens, it fills us with pride And it keeps us, listen, it keeps us from loving those that are in our face. It keeps us from loving those that God has brought into our path, whether it be those right in front of our face or whether it be our neighbors or whether it be our immediate family. But our pride keeps us from loving those well. We distance ourselves from them and we say, we're not like you. You're worse off than I am. You need professional help and I don't have a degree, right? I'm not a counselor. You need somebody, maybe some pills to go along with that professional help, right? I'm not the guy. And we distance ourselves. I need what I need for my spiritual growth. I need to be around people a whole lot more like me, right? People more sophisticated, people more put together, people more wealthy, people with a little more nuance, maybe, maybe the op- and then there's the opposite side of that, right? So that's one way we kind of, Satan tricks us. We, we get deceived by our, by our own sin. We're blinded to our own sin. See, everybody else's sin is uh, greater than ours. But he also takes another route. If the first group kind of sees everybody else's sin as a barrier to living in community and on mission, uh, the second group sees their own sin as a barrier to living in community and on mission. It's this, if people really knew how messed up I am, they would not want anything to do with me. They would not love me. They would not accept me. They would not want to hang out at my house or me hang out with them on a Friday night, right? If they knew how messed up I was, how jealous, how greedy, how insecure, no one would want to be in relationship with me, right? Now, 
Satan loves this. He loves to use our sins and our struggles with our sins uh, to trap us in guilt and shame that can keep us from being in an open, honest, intimate community of followers with Jesus. But if there's anything, and if you're just joining us, I hey, you got 10 months of sermons to catch up on, right? I'm not going to try to... <laughs> I could. I've been off for three weeks. I could try to preach all those sermons today. I might. Uh, but you've got 10 months to catch up on. And if, if you've been with us in this series of Corinthians, you should see there should be at least two things that you've noticed over and over and over and over. Two things that you've learned from this book of 1 Corinthians that we're, we've been studying. Number one, everybody's crazy. Sin was not invented in the 21st century, right? The crazy stuff you can find on the internet was not invented in the 21st century. We've seen stuff from people getting drunk at the communion table to a man wanting to marry his stepmom, right? And the church going, yeah, that sounds like a good plan, right? Paul's like, what's going on here? We see Christians suing each other. We see, I mean, he's talked about homosexuality. He's talked about premarital sex. He's talked about just every hot button topic that you can talk about. Paul's talked about, he's talked about money. And what you see is people are crazy. Secondly, our only hope for our crazy is the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in community and on mission with Jesus. That's our only hope. Our only hope for salvation, what does salvation mean? Doesn't mean just floating off into sweet and by and by. Salvation means a complete remaking, remodeling of my humanity. It means the new heavens and the new earth that are coming, remaking me as a man today in the here and now into the image of Jesus. And our only hope for that to happen is the gospel of Jesus Christ lived, living it out in community and on mission with Jesus. That's the only way it can happen. St. Augustine kind of said this best, kind of combining these two things. He said, the church is a whore and she's my mom. That's what he said. The church is a whore and she's my mother. There's an affection, an affinity, a love, but it's all messed up. It's all jacked up. The church, though she's messed up, though in the words of St. Augustine, she's a whore. Though in our words, it's jacked up beyond recognition, right? Most of the time. The church is the chosen context where God gathers his children together and he lovingly goes to work on them. See, here's the truth. We all are crazy. Everybody's crazy, but we also all try to hide our crazy. We try to keep crazy in the laundry room or crazy in the closet. Right? Or crazy in the... Well, I won't say that one. We try to keep crazy in other places. (laughs) But in the church, (laughs) God is at work to expose our crazy. God is at work to expose it so that we can confess it, so that we can be known in it, and that he can begin to heal us. That's what redemption is. But here's the deal. It's not a quick process. Do people change like this? Sometimes, yes. They jump up, but they still got a long way to go. They jump up in their sanctification. They grow real quick, 
they got a long ways to go. And if you have joined the church or maybe you're coming to the church and you're expecting to be helped and healed in a few short months, you're going to be painfully unhappy and thoroughly disappointed. It won't be too long before you leave this church in search of another place to meet your felt needs. See, Jesus and the apostle over and over and over in the scriptures, he used agricultural analogies to talk about the growth of a Christian, to talk about the spread of the gospel and the growth of God's kingdom. If you're a farmer or if you've ever planted anything, you know that you don't plant that seed and wake up in the morning and go, oh, right? Nothing happens. Well, something's happening overnight, but nothing immediate. And I I feel like our discipleship process, our idea of change, our idea of being made in the image of Jesus has been more impacted by commercialism or commercialization and industrialization. This idea that we can just, you know, like we can now just go to Walmart and buy everything you possibly could need, right? Immediately in one trip. Or this idea that you can pop something in the microwave and it's going to be cooked in 30 seconds, right? We have this idea that a Christian say a prayer, bam, out pops a Christian, which is true, but then that Christian should be mature somehow. That Christian should be healed somehow. That person should know how to handle stress and know how to deal with their anxiety, know how to shepherd their kids, know how to love their wife. And it's not like that at all. That God is remaking and reshaping our very humanity and it's going to take a lifetime to make that happen. God has had this plan of redemption since Adam and Eve. It's taken thousands of years, right, to culminate in Jesus. And now after that, it's been 2,000 years or so. And the work that God's doing in your life, it's not an immediate thing. It's a process that's going to take your entire life to complete. It's going to take our whole lives, listen, to get where we're going and to become what we're becoming. So, I think if we have that mindset and we have that mentality, we can slow down. We can be patient. Most of our frustrations with other people is we expect them. They're a Christian. They should be over that by now. They're a Christian. They should be different. And our frustrations with ourselves. Why am I still struggling with this? Why am I still impatient? Why am I still unkind? Why am I still lazy? Why do I still get so easily offended? Jesus Christ has changed my identity. He's given me his grace. Why do I still respond the way that I do? It's a long process and our loving and gracious heavenly father is at work on you in community and on mission through the power of the gospel to reshape your humanity. And it's going to take your whole life to make it happen. Do you know what it is that you're becoming You're on this trajectory. Do you know what it is that you're becoming? What you're in process of being made into? In the last chapter, chapter 15, which is the crux of the whole book, this last book, it's really weird. Uh, It's just like his tagline is what we're studying today. It's just really the end of his letter he's writing. And then at the very end, he takes it. He's got a scribe doing it all. And at the end, he takes it himself and writes in his own hand. It's just a bunch of random stuff, very practical stuff. He's signing off his letter to. But in chapter 15, the crux of the whole book, Jesus or Paul said that we are being, we're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what he said. That's our, 
calling. That's the trajectory. We're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. You know what that means? I think most of us would say, well, that means I'm growing into the likeness of Jesus. Yes and amen. But what does that look like? Right? You're growing your hair out. You're going shopping for robes. Right? What's it look like to be, to look more and more like Jesus? It's kind of, uh, you know, something that church says a lot. People say a lot. But what does that actually mean? In this last chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, we get to see what that looks like in the life of Paul. And it, it, it's not something you're going to easily notice. And it's something that was meaningful for me this week. And it's been shaping my mind and shaping my heart over the last three weeks. Have I been at home with my family uh, and with the new baby? We get to see what it looks like for a man to get changed by Jesus. I think it's remarkable. And I believe it shows us what we all should begin to resemble. What we see in this chapter, and this is just to put big terms on it, blanket terms on it. We see Paul is this man who is tough, incredibly tough, but simultaneously tender. He has a kind, warm heart, and yet a steel spine and a laser focus. Paul is so tough and so simultaneously tender that it makes him really hard to classify. You know what I mean, classify. Men, you know what I mean, to classify, right? There's two classifications for people, right? You're tough or you're a pansy, right? Let's just say that. We've learned that from growing up, right? What did, and, and here's the thing. And, and shamefully, actually... Ladies, we apologize. Actually, your mom was a part of it. All of our moms were part of it, right? When boys cry when they're a kid, what do they say? Don't act like a girl. Like, immediately, that gives a superiority complex to guys. Well, I don't want to be like a girl. Better button it up. Stop crying. Stop being a wuss, right? But Paul, we see something different about his manhood. We see something totally different about his manhood. Incredibly tough and incredibly tender. Now, let's get into this a little bit, but before we do, I want to give you a brief history of Paul. Paul, the apostle, he's a scholar, okay? Let's just, big picture, let's just say that. He's a scholar. He's a brilliant man. He's went to some of the greatest schools available at the time. He was a master of the law. He was, um, in his own words, a Jew of Jews. So he was very strict. He was in the strictest sect sect of the Pharisees. Um, And one chapter in the Bible, in the uh, New Testament, the Gospels, the Pharisees are talking about how they tithe. That means they pay 10%, but not just of their money that they get in, even of their spice rack, okay? That's how detail-oriented we're talking Pharisees are, okay? They're going to their spice rack and they're measuring out 10% and they're bringing it to the temple, okay? They are straight-laced, buttoned up, rule followers. Uh, You know, Paul, I think, is probably a type A guy, uh, when when Jesus was uh, killed and resurrected and, he st- and the, the church pops off, right? Uh, Paul says, this is, a, this is a cult. This is not the true Jew- Jewish religion. This is a cult. We need to snuff it out right now. Better quick, better now than later. Uh, he's standing there when they... Uh, They stone Stephen, the first martyr, the first Christian martyr. He's kind of holding the coats, the cloaks for everybody as they stone Stephen. And then uh, that wasn't obviously, that obviously that wasn't good enough. So Paul goes and he gets letters so that he can go to other cities and, excuse me, and literally drag Christians out of their homes and throw them into prison. If I could get something to drink, I don't know. I've had three weeks off, so I'm a a rookie, I guess now. 
Um, so Paul is this aggressive guy, right? He's a straight laced rule following, uh, look at me. I'm pretty good. Do what I do type of man. And he's aggressive and, and very out there with his faith, with his religion, willing to drag people out of their homes and, uh, and throw them into prison for following Jesus. Right? So I doubt Paul was like the fun loving uncle, right? I want to go to Paul's house. He's so fun. Right? I seriously doubt he's the guy renting the bounce house in his backyard and having water balloon fights, right? With his grandkids or with his, I mean, with his nephews, right? Paul is a, is a staunchly religious man. He's a hard man. I would say he's, he's maybe a cold man. He's a rule following man. Thank you, brother. But something happens to Paul. And I want you to see, as we read this letter, I want you to think, I want you to see the juxtaposition of who Paul is as he's writing this letter, as he's closing this letter, and who Paul was. Okay, I want you to see a clear juxtaposition there. Let's, let's go ahead and begin to read. Verse 5. And there's going to be some weird stuff here, so let's just go. If you have your Bibles, open it up. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5. There's Bibles. should be laying in your aisle if you don't have one. Apps on your phone. You should be good. Okay, verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. First off, the Bible, it's written for us, but it's not written to us, okay? Many people want to take the Bible literally in every single uh, aspect. Um, well, this is a good example of where you can't do that, right? I'm, I'm just going to let you know this. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Paul, he, he's already dead, okay? So he's not on his way to Macedonia here. Just to let, just to clear that up, okay? Let's keep moving. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, okay? For I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Okay, now look, right here, this is from some of Paul's travel plans, what he's planning to do. But then I want you to see this kind of glimpse just a little bit into, into some, some tenderness that's beginning to develop or begun to develop in the Apostle Paul. He's not like a prophet speaking to the church in Corinthians, get your act together or I'm coming out there with a belt, right? He's not speaking like that. He, he, he's, he reminds him over and over again, this is where 1 Corinthians 13, remember? The love chapter smack dab in the middle of this jacked up church. And Paul's speaking to them and he's saying, I don't just want you to get your act together. I don't want to just come to town and preach a conference and yell at you all and kind of, you know, whoop you and get your act together so you'll go be good. I want to come and I want to live with you. I want to come. I desire not just to swip, you know, shoot through town. I desire to come and stick around and stay and walk with you and talk with you and live with you. Over and over we've seen this concept in the in 1 Corinthians, where Paul's saying, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. You're my kids. I'm like your dad. Uh, imitate my way of living. He wants to go live life with them. Now, listen, if you're a hard type of man, if you're a tough dude, you know you don't say that kind of stuff very often. Hey, bro, I'm just really hoping to stop by and just hang out, just spend some time with you, you know? Maybe we can just look into each other's eyes and say deep things, right? Right? It's typically, hey man, what are you doing? Nothing. You want to watch a game? All right, cool. And we're together, but we're both looking here, right? 
Or what are you doing? You need to work on my car? All right, let's go. Come on, let's go do that. Right? Guys like to be shoulder to shoulder. Right? We're doing things together. Paul here has got this little bit of intimacy that we see. He's like, I really long to be with you, to be with my disciples. I really long to live life with you, not just preach a sermon, but to live life with you. Okay, let's, he's concerned for their welfare. Let's keep going. Verse eight, but I will stay in Ephesus. He's again writing this letter of correction uh, while he's in Ephesus until Pentecost for, look at this, a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. That is a strange sentence to me, right? He's like, there's huge opportunities, but I have a lot of enemies, right? Hey, I I desire to come hang out, live life with you, be in community and on mission with you. But right now there's a huge opportunity for the expanse of the gospel and the spread of the gospel, but there, and there's a lot of adversaries. So I need to stick around. I think most of us would be go, Things are really hard here. Things are really difficult. There's a lot of enemies. There's a lot of adversaries. So I'll be on my way tomorrow. Right? And Paul's, it's the exact opposite for Paul. He's like, there's a lot of opportunity for the gospel, a lot of enemies, a lot of adversaries. So I got to stick around. Now, this just boggles my mind. We kind of see this tender guy who's like, I really want to come hang out. I really want to be with you, walk with you, live, talk with you, live with you, be in community with you, shepherd you, gospel, gospel you, disciple. I really want to do that. But things are really hard here. And God has me here and I need to stick it out. See, we see this steel spine and this soft heart in one man. Let's keep going. When Timothy comes... Timothy is Paul's protege. See that you put him at ease among you. He's cared. Look at this care and concern, pastoral heart that Paul has for Timothy. He's like, see that you put him at ease among you for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So he's telling you, there's a fellow worker of the Lord. Treat him well. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Keep going. Now concerning Apollos. There was some issues with Apollos, with Apollos people and Paul's people. If you remember in the, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he's making it, making it clear that he has no problem with Apollos. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it's not as all, at all his will to come. Now he'll come when he has opportunity. Now look at this. Look at this. Be watchful. That means stay awake in the Greek. Stay awake. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. What's the faith? First Corinthians chapter 15 talked. It's all about the gospel, right? Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Tough. Some tough language. Now look. Let all that you, be, let all that you do be done in love. This is... It seems like a clear juxtaposition. This seems like two different people. Stand up, act like a man, be tough, stand firm, do everything in love. It's like, did mom just speak up? What was that? All right? Dad's giving him football advice. Crush him. All right? Hey, if he gets hurt, he gets hurt. Mom's in the background. Come on, be sweet. All right? Is it? No, that's not what's going on. This is one, this is the Apostle Paul. seems to be 
this act like men statement is the Greek term. In, in the Greek, it's, it means to be courageous. But to tell someone, I think we need to do some work here because to tell someone in our society, maybe when you see that, maybe ladies in this room, you just act like a man and you, you know, hair stands up in the back of your neck, Right? Because to tell someone to act like a man, I think, means something totally different than be courageous uh, in our society today. In most of our media today, men are uh, depicted as no more than boys who can shave, right? The, uh, it's, they've actually created, marketers have created this man, this, uh, they actually call him the mook. It's the man who's depicted as crude, as sexually obsessed, as ignorant Neanderthals who do everything in their power to avoid responsibility and shirk any hard work. They're like the foolish young man in the book of Proverbs who gets led by his desires to the house of the prostitute and doesn't realize he's like the lamb that's going to the slaughterhouse. Or you have the other side of the coin. You have the mook, and then you also have this manhood that's depicted in all of our movies, or many of our movies, right? Like Rambo and John McClane, right? These men who know how to be tough, but they can't be tender, right? So, so what is Paul saying here? When he says, act like men, and, and, and what he's saying, be courageous, I think it's a ter- for ladies and for men. This isn't just for the men. Act like men, but what's he saying? What type of man, right? Ron Burgundy, Jason Bourne, right? Walter White, Jax Teller, Billy Madison, Don Draper. What does it, ma- what does it mean for us to act like men? And if you don't know, this is a huge problem in our society, in our culture. We don't know what a real man is. We don't know how to be real men. We have issues with this. It seems that our culture, from my eyes, from my perspective, our culture has two options. Our culture gives us two options. You can be the soft, funny, immature guy who gets along with everyone and has a thousand Facebook friends, but then runs from responsibility and therefore never really adds much to society. You're the funny, fun-loving, friendly guy, but you never really carry weight or make big sacrifices for others. I heard, I read this week uh, a secular guy who was saying that a boy, when, when, a, when a boy goes from boyhood to manhood, it's when he can uh, add more to society than he takes from it. That's the definition, his definition of going from boyhood to manhood. When a man, a person can add more to society, add more value to society than he takes from it. Now, that used to happen around the age 13, 14, or 15. And now, it's pushing the 30s. Or, you have the second option, and that's the emotionally distant workaholic. The man who carries a lot of weight and responsibility, but struggles to connect on an emotional level, and as Paul says, to do everything in love. He struggles with that. He wants his work to be enough. 
When the kids say, dad, I don't know you. He wants to say, look what I've given you. Look what I've done. Right? He doesn't get the emotions. But in Paul, in this chapter even, it's so weird as we study this chapter. In Paul, we see a different type of man. I think we get a glimpse of a, a new manhood that the gospel only can produce. That the culture that we live in can't create. Our culture can't create these tough and tender men like we see in Paul. But the gospel does. The gospel demands it. If you're only tough, the gospel says you're immature and out of line. If you're only tender, the gospel says you're immature and out of line. We are called to be tender and tough simultaneously. Paul has now spent, he spent all chapter 15 talking about how the seed of the resurrection is already in us. The first fruits of the harvest, it's already in us. We're, we've been, like Christ has been sown in us and he's growing inside of us. He's renewing us into the likeness of Jesus. That includes our manhood or our womanhood. That includes our personhood. People get weird when I start talking like this, like he's creating a new humanity. He's making us more human than we are. He's repairing us and fixing us and healing us. Paul has said, like I said earlier, over and over, follow me as I follow Christ. He's not just talking about making converts. Come, let me, that's why we get such, we get so disconnected. We think, Justin, you're in the ministry and I just sit here and come and I just hear the gospel and hopefully, you know, people are here and they'll hear the gospel and come to Jesus, but I just come. That's all I do. We have this disconnection between that, that we're really involved in the ministry, that my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And that when we're following Paul, as he follows Jesus, we're following him, not just into preaching the gospel, but into being a new human being a new type of man, being a different woman, having a new, showing the world what a life lived with God looks like. How does God change a really hard man and soften him like he has done with Paul? The world needs that. The world needs to see a man who can work his butt off all day long and come home and scoop up his kids and hug them and kiss them and love them and disciple them and read them the Bible and take his wife out on a date and go do something for the neighbor. The, the, the world needs to see a man possessed by the love of God like that, who can be tough when he needs to be tough and can be tender. And if you're the dad, I mean, I'm not going to say this. Well, I'm going to change how I'm going to say it. There's plenty of us who scoop up the kids and they love the kids and they do it. But then when it comes time to mow the grass, we look, hey, honey, grass needs mowed. I know you're looking at me because I let my wife mow the grass while she was pregnant, right? (laughs) I know, I get it. I've heard enough about it, right? I was going to mow the grass. She said, let me mow the grass. And I said, honey, go ahead, right? right? Can we be simultaneously tough and tender. And I think the only way that happens is in the gospel. Why? Because we're being made into the image of the first fruit. Who is that? Jesus. We're being made into the image of Jesus. And if you look at the life of Jesus, it's, preachers do a poor job of this, in my opinion. Preachers preach on the gentleness of Jesus 
Or you have preachers like me who have a more aggressive personality and they teach on the, the, uh, the strength of Jesus. They teach on the power of Jesus. They teach on the toughness of Jesus. They want to go to Revelation 21 and talk about his eyes like fire and tattoo on his leg and sword coming out of his mouth. They want to teach on that kind of Jesus. But he's both. He's not somewhere in the middle. He's both 100% simultaneously. When he needs to be tough, he's tough. When he needs to be tender, he's tender. We see this throughout his ministry. Obviously, to go to the cross, to carry the weight, to take the beating, to die for us, that takes an incredible amount of mental toughness and an incredible amount of physical toughness. We get that. But you also see this relational toughness, right? Tender guys, tender gals, they don't like to cross people's will, so they say yes a lot. They don't want to say no. They don't want to say that's wrong. They don't want to say, I think that could hurt you. Uh, what you just did to your kid right there, that was, that was not good. Right? Tender people don't want to cross their friends. Right? Jesus was not afraid to do that. We see him crossing Pharisees. We see him crossing rulers. We see him crossing a lot of people. And even one of his favorite guys, John. Right? Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Peter opposes. Jesus goes, Jesus pulls him in, teaches him a lesson. Hey, guys, here Sneak, sneak peek here, okay? Here's the trailer to the movie. I'm going to die for your sin. Then I'll be resurrected three days later. What's Peter do? Uh, that was Peter. I, meant, I said John earlier. But what's Peter do? Peter says, no, Lord, not you. You can't die and do that. No. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, Peter, calm down. You, come here, buddy. Come here. Give me a hug. I know you love me. I know you're going to miss me. He says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man and you're not thinking like God. So, so Jesus says to Peter, now how do you like to have that kind of conversation? Right? Well, that's a fun leadership moment, right? Mentor, coach, Satan, shut up. Oh. Right? <laughs> See, Jesus was incredibly tough, incredibly stern. He had a backbone again, like I've been saying, when he needed to be. Right? It wasn't just all, you know, rainbows and butterflies walking with Jesus. He was tough. But, listen, when I say that, he was incredibly tough, wasn't afraid to hurt people's feelings for the truth and for the mission of God. But listen, in no way was Jesus a bully. No way did Jesus just run over people with his mission. He was also incredibly I would say, <laughs> uncomfortably tender. Right? Jesus sits down. All the apostles, the apostles are like, we got mission to do, Jesus. We, got, we are like healing people and multiplying fish. And we're doing some crazy stuff. Let's get on this thing. I could build a stage. You, if we could get some lights out here, it would be great. Some microphones, maybe. Let's take this on the road. And then we get these kids that come up. Little kids running, Jesus. The apostles are like, right? Come on, kids. We got work to do. Scattle. Get. Scoot. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let him come to me. And he just, a man, listen, you're all hanging out with your buddies, right? And there's just one guy sits down and is like, bring the kids. <laughs> Sit on my lap. How awkward. It's just uncomfortable. Right? It's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's just our version of manhood doesn't include that kind of stuff. 
right? And not only that, then we got Jesus looking over Jerusalem. It says like a hen over her chicks, a hen. How often do you guys worship and pray to Jesus? Jesus, I just thank you that you were a hen, that you just want to, you know, sit on me or whatever. Hens do. <laughs> you just want to gather me together and hen me or whatever that means. Right? It's just awkward. It's, he, that, what is that though? That's a very tender illustration, right? That's a very intimate illustration that he looks at people and he doesn't just look at the masses. He looks like they're his children and he wants to protect them and he wants to cover them, right? <laughs> Scripture says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. We see Jesus weeping when his friend Lazarus dies. And then one of the most awkward ones, if you would walk in to the Last Supper that we celebrate here, you walk into the Last Supper and you would see John, who calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And you would see John lean back. They, they sit down. The tables are only about this high or whatever. And they lean back. And you would see John lean back on the breast of Jesus. Right? You walk into this. Whoa. How much of that wine have you had here now? What's going on in this room? Right? You see this uncomfortable intimacy that Jesus possesses. That he's okay with. See prostitutes weeping at his feet and washing his feet with their hair and everybody's uncomfortable and Jesus is perfectly fine with it. See, this is our savior. This is our manhood. This is what a man looks like. Incredibly tough when he needs to be tough. He won't back down to anyone, but incredibly tender when the time comes to be tender. Emotionally connected Let me ask you, what type of man are you? What type of woman are you? Are you tough, right? Able to get stuff done? You can carry weight, but you find it really difficult to connect emotionally with other people? Or are you tender? You resonate with people and you, you feel, you get the mother hen. You get it. You feel like the mother hen, but if you're honest with yourself, you're not very tough. You get offended easily. You feel slighted and misunderstood all the time. You don't have self-control. You're tender, but not tough. Listen, people might tell you it's your personality. You're an introvert. You're an extrovert. You're a people person. You're a task-oriented person. You don't find any of those labels in the scriptures. Why? Because listen to this. This is going to maybe might blow your mind. You were built, you were made by a God who dwells himself in a community and he gets a lot of stuff done, right? He was a productive community. He was a creative community. Jesus lives in community or God is in community, but he also gets things done. And we were made in his image to live in a community and to be productive in a community. That means our humanity, to be human, should be deeply relational, while at the same time, productive and creative. Paul was a tough dude, but that wasn't good enough. God wasn't satisfied with 
Paul, being a cold-hearted scholar, it wasn't human enough. When Jesus saved Paul, he began to make him more human, more true to the original that we see in Jesus. Jesus is our humanhood. He is our example of our manhood and our womanhood, in a sense. And Jesus was far more manly than macho. He carried more weight than any other person in history, but he did so tenderly. This is our man. This is who God is making us into his image. This is, he's at work in us. See, men, some of you have been frustrated with God because he's opposed your plan. He's opposed the expansion of your business. He's opposed your prosperity. He's made things not go well for you. Why? Because he's not interested in your success. He's interested in you being this type of man, of being a new human. Maybe he's more interested in you connecting relationally than he is with you succeeding in business or whatever it is. But I, so how's this happen? I think we see Jesus was tough and tender. Paul was tough and tender. How do we become tough and tender? How do we become this, this type of man? Right? And I think what I see from not just this text, but from the whole of scripture, to be, in order to be made into this type of man, you have to be unmade first. In order to be made into this type of man, you have to be unmade first. I think we see it with the Apostle Paul, not right here in this text, but what happens after he was, uh, after he got those letters, he was dragging people out of their homes and he was persecuting them and he was throwing them in jail. He's on his way to Damascus to do the same thing again. And we see the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ show up in all his glory and knock the Apostle Paul off his horse. Whoa, he says, who are you? I'm Jesus Christ, right? Everything he knew about himself just got unmade, right? I mentioned it a few weeks ago. For him, a Jew, God is one, right? Jesus shows up. He's the Lord. He's God. Whoop! My theology's all jacked up right now. He had to be unmade first. We see it with Isaiah. Isaiah enters the temple and he sees the cherubim. He sees the angels. He sees all this holiness. And he just, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm completely undone, he says. He comes into the, impre- into the presence of something greater than himself, some glory greater than himself. And he's unmade. He's undone. He feels cut to the heart. He feels cut to the quick. Look what Paul says in verse 22. Let me, let me just see this one thing. Paul says this. He's writing this in his own hand. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, that's, if anyone has no love for Jesus, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. What's he saying? What's he saying? Listen. Okay. Jesus says it like this in John three thirty six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But listen, for the wrath of God remains on him. 
You ever study that? You got to circle that word remains. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus Christ because God has shown up in your heart and he's forgiven all your sins and he's knocked you off your horse and he's wrecked your manhood, your idea of manhood, right? He's cut you to the core of your humanity where you feel broken and you feel not good enough and you feel just down in the dust. If that's never happened to you, then the wrath of God remains on you and you're cursed. What the heck does that mean? Every single person is born into this world with the wrath of God on them. They were born in sin. Their parents were sinners. They sin as soon as they can talk. Before that, actually. They're born sinful, and that sin is a rebellion against their creator, rebellion against their God. They don't want anyone to tell them what a man looks like or what a child should look like or how a person should act. They want to be their own God. The wrath of God is on them. And if that wrath of God is not removed, when they die or when Christ comes back, that wrath of God remains on them and they'll pay for their sins for all eternity. But there's another option. See, after Paul says, if no one loves Jesus, let him be cursed. Verse 23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. See, how do you get the wrath of God removed? You get the wrath of God removed through the grace of Jesus. Jesus takes your place and removes the wrath of God from you by absorbing the full force of God's wrath in his body on the cross. See, that should knock you off your horse this morning. That should unmake you if you understand it this morning. If you get it, it will undo you. That you, you were on death row. And that was the just, just punishment for your crimes against God, your sin. But Jesus took your place. See, Jesus doesn't just take you off of death row, give you a pass. That's not the cross. That's not the gospel. Jesus takes you off death row and he takes your place. Does that offend you? Do you, do you push back on that? Death row? Maybe that was a traffic offense. It's a ticket. I'm not that bad. I know a whole lot more people way off, way worse than me. Have you been offended by the cross? Have you been offended by the gospel? See, this is what it means to be knocked off your horse. Paul thought he was the hero. Paul thought he was God's man. Paul thought he was so full of pride. He was so blinded by his own sin. Riding in Damascus, he thinks, I'm on God's mission. I'm the man. I'm gonna get and he and God is opposed to him. God has to knock him off his horse and show him, You are a sinner. The wrath of God is on you. You need the grace of Jesus. Have you been undone undone? Have you been offended by the gospel? Have you been offended? by the cross of Christ. Listen, if you haven't been, guys, that's the prerequisite. That's the entrance exam to get into this type of manhood and womanhood. That's what makes a man tender and tough. Being absolutely offended to his core 
that he's so bad, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, son of God had to die for him. But at the same time, he so loved that Jesus graciously, willingly died for him. If that's not you, you haven't been knocked off your high horse yet. So you'll always be tough, but not tender. Or tender, but not tough. Which one of you? Which one are you? If you don't know, ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your friends. They know. Paul is tender enough to want to be with the Corinthians to long to live in community and on mission with them, but he's tough enough to stay the course in Ephesus amid strong opposition. He's tough enough to speak out against the Corinthian sins, and yet he's tender enough to do so in love. He even signs, the, he signs off the letter, in love. Let my love be on you all. Now listen, why is the gospel the only way into this toughness and tenderness in one person? Listen, this is why. If you're a man or a woman in here, who you, if you're tender, tender men, tender women, they use their tenderness as their justification. So they can't be tough. See, what, what I mean, I know my justification. What tells me I'm a good person? I know I'm a good person. The tender people say this. I know I'm a good person because I'm nice. I know I'm a good person because I listen to people and I smile a lot and I hug them and I'm really tender like Jesus to people, right? So they can't be tough because if they try to be tough, that root that wrecks their tenderness, idolatry, their tenderness, identity. You see that? Because being a nice person is their justification for life. If, if someone says, you're mean, it will wreck you. You're abrasive. You're a bully. It will cut you to your heart. It's like hell on earth for you. For someone to, if you're tender, for someone to say, you're a bully, you're mean, you don't get it. It would cut you to your soul. See, you're using your tenderness for your justification. Instead of using the righteousness of Christ for your justification. Instead of using Jesus Christ's death on the cross for you as your justification. That because Christ was tough for me, I can be tough. Well, Christ was tender for me, I can be tender. And their opinions of me does not change who I am in Christ. Now, if you're tough, tough men and women use their toughness, their resiliency, their achievements as their justification. So they can't be tender. See? If you're tough, being tender will complicate your life. It will cause you to slow down. So you won't get as much work done. You won't be as efficient. You won't be get, get as many accolades or awards or achievements. It's not, tenderness is not the fast track to the top. So tough men who are using their toughness as their justification can never be tender. They can't. It's hell on earth to them. To slow down, slow down. What do you want me to do? Hold hands with somebody, right? That's, that's how tough men hear it, right? I'm here to get stuff done. Their toughness is their justification. 
Now listen. I pray that we wouldn't use our toughness or our tenderness for our justification, but that we would use Christ as our justification and that we, through the power of the gospel at work in our life and his sanctifying grace as we live in community on mission, one another as we're being made more and more and more into the image of Jesus, that we would be people that look like Jesus and look like Paul, tough and tender. So I'm going to ask you this morning. I want to confront you with the real Jesus. I want to put, as I close, I want to put the real Jesus in front of you. Some of us, if you're tough, you might need the tender Jesus to stand in front of you this morning. And you might just need to be really awkward out, just totally get awkward and weird. And I don't know what to do with my hands. And because there's an intimate, affectionate, hen-like Jesus standing in front of you saying, lay your deadly doing down, lay all your work down, stop justifying your existence by your toughness. Let me love you. You need to meet that Jesus this morning. And there's some of you who, you know, you're, you're the tender and you like to slow dance with Jesus in your bedroom at home. And you need, you need the tough Jesus to stand up. The Jesus that says, hey, grow up. Let's bring maturity to this thing. Let's fight against our sin. Let's live in community. Let's be on mission. Let's make disciples. You need to have an encounter with that Jesus. You don't get one or the other, right? With the real Jesus, please stand up, right? We, we need both lion and the lamb, tough and tender. We don't get to choose which side of Jesus we want to hang out with. He's both. And I hope I put put him before you today and I hope you believe in him today because he's the only way to the father. He's the only way to happiness. He's the only way to joy. He's the only way to fulfillment. And he's the only way to your manhood. He's the only way to your personhood. He's the only way to you to be that type of person, tough and tender. And I think our city needs that type of person. Right? I think this church needs to be full of that type of person. And I think if this church is full of that per- type of person and our city's full of that type of person, then we're going to see many people come to know Jesus. We're going to see many disciples made. We're going to see many missional communities planted. We're going to see many new churches planted. Then we're going to see the glory of God renew this city. And that's my prayer. I think that's what God has us here for. I think that's why God has you here. And I'm going to call you into this. I'm going to call Come on, join us in this mission. Join us. It's not a quick mission. It's going to take our whole life to do this thing. As we prepare to come down to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to be introspective. I want you to uh, check your heart. Has the Spirit pricked something in you? Has the Spirit convicted you of something, don't ignore it. Confess it to the Father. Repent to the Father before you come down and take his body and drink his blood. Be reminded we're crazy. 
And the only hope for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in community and on mission together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the work that you're doing in my heart, the work that you're doing in the heart of this church. That we don't want to just become some kind of spectacle. We don't want to be some kind of show. That we want to be a new humanity. We want to be your people, saved by your grace, gathered together by your spirit, empowered for your mission. I thank you for just the long grace that you give us. Uh, The grace that saved us. I believe maybe you save people today. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and turn from their own righteousness to Jesus. And that grace sustains us. It, It keeps us. It sanctifies us, makes us more and more and more like Jesus. It's your grace is at work in us right now. And I pray for those of us who are tough, we would lay our toughness down in a sense. And we would say, uh, Jesus, love me tenderly and help me uh, receive your tenderness and love others with that type of tenderness. And Father, those of us who are tender, that we could lay our tenderness down in a sense and say, Jesus, be tough with me where I need you to be tough with me. Speak the hard word to me. Undo me. Knock me off my high horse. And Father, you would give us all much grace much grace as you continue to work this salvation out in our hearts, in our souls, in our community, in our church, uh, that we would be that church that's reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. As we come now and take your body that was broken for us and we drink your blood that was spilled for us, um, let us... Take in grace. Let us receive that. Let us uh, feel that, that you put something in our hands, that you put something on our mouth, that uh, you've met our needs in Christ. Every need that we have, you've met it in Christ. And that this work of sanctification, this work that we're being made into Jesus, it's not all on our shoulders. You promised that you started it and you would finish it. So we look to you, the perfecter of our faith, the author of, and the finisher, the Alpha and the Omega, we look to you in worship this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.